Good evening. Welcome to our third lecture this week. I, I just have one or two things of uh, one or two business notes. I am passing out receipts for rare book school students, and I didn't make it to all of you today. Uh, if you did not get a receipt, uh, find me tomorrow at one of the breaks, and I'll be sure to give you your receipt. Fridays are slightly different rare book school days. Uh, the day is shorter. We end at 4 to have our final party. Um, actually, we end a little before that, 15 minutes before, uh, to pass out evaluations, uh, class evaluations, for those classes that meet in the afternoon. If you are only meeting tomorrow morning, then we'll uh, catch you before the noon break. Dan Traster must be a very good friend of Rare Book School, for he has served seven summers with Jack Parker teaching the course in rare book librarianship, which uh, he is doing, in fact, this week. Um, they are, have taught, they are teaching the longest-running course in rare book school. Uh, in real life, Dan is assistant director for special collections at the University of Pennsylvania. Dan Traster. It's good there's somebody here who knows what real life is. <laughs> I should start by saying that uh, last year, those of you who haven't yet had the pleasure of filling evaluations out do have that pleasure to look forward to. And I was particularly enchanted by one response to the course that Jack and I taught, which said, that Parker, he's okay, but Traster, you can't shut him up. He talks and he talks and he talks and he talks and he goes on talking. Well, I've been doing a lot of talking today. And at some point, it's possible that even so well-trained a voice will give out. So if you have problems hearing me, please don't hesitate. Make yourself known. This is an essay which is by way of uh, an extended note and a commentary on certain trends in the new book history, and I would be particularly grateful, uh, and I mean this quite literally because the paper is still in development, it is quite distinctly a work in progress, for comments and even more particularly for criticisms that people may have to make. Uh, grateful means grateful. If you have comments, I will really be anxious to hear them, and particularly if they're critical comments. My title is Reluctant Virgins, The Stigma of Print Revisited, a title whose implications, I trust, will become more obvious as the paper wears its weary way on. In 1614, John Donne wrote to his friend Sir Henry Goodyear to tell him, but so softly that I am loath to hear myself and so softly that if that good lady, Lucy, Countess of Bedford, with whom Goodyear was visiting at the time, were in the room with you and this letter, she might not hear that I am brought to a necessity of printing my poems. This I mean to do forthwith, not for much public view, but at mine own cost, a few copies. I apprehend some incongruities in the resolution, 
and I know what I shall suffer from many interpretations, but I am at an end of much considering that, and if I were as startling in that kind as ever I was, yet in this particular, I am under an unescapable necessity, as I shall let you perceive when I see you. Dunn sounds as though he is about to undergo an exceptionally unpleasant experience. One of the reluctant virgins of my title, he represents himself as brought kicking and screaming, not to bed, but to the press. By his lights, he was to prove lucky. In the end, his chastity was preserved, for not until his body had been laid to rest, wearing its famous shroud, were his literary remains violated by the rough impressions of the printer's black ink. Dunn's response to the prospect of having his poetry printed is illuminated by J.W. Saunders' article, The Stigma of Print, a note on the social bases of Tudor poetry. This essay appeared some 38 years ago, and it remains a small classic. The passage of time has failed to diminish its significance, while subsequent scholarship has made the issues it raises and its conclusions increasingly worth consideration by scholars in several fields. Both the new historians who investigate the social and political functions of English literature in the 16th and 17th centuries, and the equally new historians who investigate the impact on Western culture of the development of printing from movable type have, since the publication of Saunders' article, studied questions directly related to matters its author considered. Saunders' footnotes, in fact, contain the seeds of important articles and books that years after his work appeared were to elaborate points that he had tossed off almost casually in a few sentences. Some of the new historians and their historiographical sources especially have made significant use of his work. Other studies, however, among them some written by book historians that have proved exceptionally influential, have ignored Saunders, but not to the advantage of the subject they were attempting to advance. Yet his essay is particularly important for historians of printing and its impact. Were it only better known by them, it might serve to unsettle some of the views they promulgate that have come like a juggernaut to dominate approaches to early printing history. I have in mind, specifically, the views articulated by Elizabeth L. Eisenstein, Fonce at Origo of the New Printing History in English. In her monumental study of the printing press as an agent of change, Eisenstein suggests a few of the criteria by which we can gauge the impact of the shift from manuscript to print in the early modern period. By comparison with texts which existed only in unique or few manuscript copies, Printed texts, clearly more numerous, were more widely disseminated and thus able to be read in greater profusion. Amenable to standardization and correction, they offered inducements to rationalized organization of data,
through such obvious to us devices as exactly repeated page numbers and tables of contents, and also through alphabetized indices, dictionaries, atlases, and so forth. Many of these techniques had, of course, been tried by manuscript books, but they were always copy-specific and difficult to use repeatedly in exemplars, each of which might have unique non-repeatable features which would vitiate the advantages of such devices. <coughs> Excuse me. Both the existence of multiple dispersed copies of texts on the one hand and the freeing of their contents from the substantive corruptions through repeated recopying to which manuscripts were forever subject on the other made possible the preservation of knowledge new and old in a manner hitherto impossible. These characteristics Alvin B. Kernan has conveniently labeled multiplicity, systematization, and fixity. Their self-evident value explains why print triumphed over the manuscript book, and they have therefore come to dominate thinking about the rapidity of the impact of printing from movable type. But Saunders' work provides evidence of an important exception to their sway. Saunders' major point may be summarized very simply. A great deal of Tudor poetry, he writes, never passed beyond the manuscript stage, and even where it did ultimately reach print, the manuscript was generally considered the normal medium of publication. In developing this point, Saunders distinguishes court poets from professional poets. The former, who were gentlemen, shunned print. Once their poetry had circulated within the manuscript audience, its job was done, and little attempt was made by its writers to preserve it or keep track of it. In contrast, professionals, whom Saunders calls the poor fellows that lived by poetry, directly or indirectly, were dependent upon printed as opposed to manuscript circulation of their work. Outside the theater, Saunders writes, it was the printers who provided these poets with the best opportunity to capitalize their poetic genius. Though the pecuniary rewards were in themselves meager and hazardous, and though few writers could expect any regular income from publications, nevertheless, the printed page provided a ready introduction to the fruits of patronage, and thereby, in times which were literally desperate, for many authors, a gateway to social advancement and security. So, Whereas for the amateur poets of the court, an avoidance of print was socially desirable, for the professional poets outside or only on the edge of court circles, the achievement of print becomes an economic necessity. As Saunders was to write some years later, most of the writers whom we have regarded as pioneers of professional belles lettres made use of their literary gifts as a means to an end rather than as an end in themselves, and were much more interested in social promotion at court, the open door to talents, to the talented, 
than in literary independence. Many of their complaints were not so much those of frustrated would-be literary professionals as those of neglected would-be political placemen. Writing about a period, the 16th century, in which Eisenstein and her epigones have led us to expect that the formal written word will circulate in print, Saunders has identified an exception. It is an exception distinguished by social and economic status, and at least partially by genre. Some examples will be helpful, although these cannot be exhaustive, and in fact are not. Saunders provides additional examples illustrative of the indifference or reluctance evidenced by many Tudor writers to committing their works to print. I can provide additional Stuart examples as well. Among earlier Tudor writers, Sir Thomas Wyatt, dead in 1542, and Henry Howard, Earl of Surrey, dead in 1547, both avoided print. Wyatt's translation of Plutarch's Quiet of Mind appeared in 1528. His poetry, however, did not begin to see print, usually anonymously, until the 1540s, and no genuinely substantial selection was printed until Tottle's Miscellany, that is, the Songs and Sonnets, appeared in 1557, 15 years after Wyatt's death. Tottle also printed Surrey, of course, although earlier printed work by him had appeared in Sternhold's version of Proverbs, 1549 to 50. Later in the century, Sir Philip Sidney, dead in 1586 at the age of 32, only appeared in print four years after his death when the Arcadia was published. Astrophil and Stella, his sonnet sequence, appeared the next year in 1591. Two independent editions of the defensive poetry appeared in 1595. Among his slighter works, The Lady of May awaited print until 1598, while The Letter to Queen Elizabeth appeared in 1663. The translation of the Psalms, completed by his sister, the Countess of Pembroke, was not printed until 1823. The original unrevised version of the Arcadia did not appear in print until early in this century after Bertram Dobell's discovery of the manuscript. Philip's brother, Robert, Earl of Leicester, died of old age in 1626. Also a poet, he is, however, entirely absent from literary history since none of his work was printed until the 1970s. Only in 1984 did it make its first monographic appearance in print in the edition of Peter J. Croft, who had recognized the significance of the manuscript in which Robert Sidney's poetry is preserved. It is at least my impression that it is still possible for anybody eager to do so to own a copy of the first edition Uh, an editio princeps of an Elizabethan poet at reasonable cost, although what Oxford calls reasonable these days is uh, an amusing point to consider. Philip's friend and contemporary, Folk Greville, Lord Brooke, died after being stabbed in 1628. He had appeared in print when an unauthorized edition of his play, Mustafa, was printed in 1609. 
Otherwise, his certain learned and elegant works awaited printing until he had been dead for five years, his life of Sydney until 1652, and his remains being poems of monarchy and religion until 1670. The publisher's advertisement to the 1670 remains asserts that Greville intended to publish his literary works. He had revised them in his old age and, at his death, committed them to his friend, Mr. Michael Mallet, an aged gentleman, in whom he most confided, who intended what the author purposed to have had them printed altogether. Their posthumous appearance if we may believe the 1670 advertisement, is merely an accidental consequence of Greville's premature demise. He had, while still alive, made more of a concession to print than either of the Sydney brothers seems to have been made. But that conclusion does depend upon our relying on the veracity of the 1670 advertisement and one is not quite certain how much reliance can be placed upon it. Sir Edward Dyer, another of Philip's friends, was similarly indifferent to appearing in print while he remained alive. According to his editor, Ralph Sargent, he seems also to have been entirely uninterested in the survival of his poetic manuscripts, making no collection of his verse and preserving neither a single poem in his own handwriting nor any comment by himself about his own writing. Even a client of the Sydneys, such as Abraham Franz, who was normally neither averse to print nor even to appropriating the work of other writers, such as Thomas Watson's Amintus, might find occasion when print seemed worth avoiding. When France wrote a book of impresi for the Sydneys themselves, he left it unpublished in a splendid presentation manuscript. So far as I'm aware, it remains unpublished to this day, although it is still intact, splendid presentation binding and all, at Oxford's Bodleian Library, where it is MS Rawlinson D345. Uh, I believe that D. Kuhlman is working on this, but it has yet to see print. Early Tudor writers and members of the Sydney Circle were not alone in exhibiting such indifference to or reluctance about appearing as literary authors in print. John Donne, last seen in 1614, dreading the prospect of appearing as a printed poet, died in 1631. His poems, edited by his son, appeared in 1633. Of his poetry, only the, the anniversaries, commissioned, occasional, epideictic poems, together with the related funeral elegy, had been printed before his death, apart from a few scattered poems appearing either as songs or as selections printed in other people's books. His religious writings, on the other hand, including his sermons, had frequently appeared in print before his death. Sermons were Dunn's job, getting them published part of it, in a way that his poetry, even his religious poetry, evidently was not. 
Thomas Carey printed only 10 of his poems, as well as his Mass Carlum Britannicum during his lifetime, three of them without his name, and at least one of these without authorization. Once he was dead, however, printers literally allowed no grass to grow over his dead body, for on the day of his funeral, 23 March 1639-40, a book called The Works of Thomas Carey, Esquire, late sower to his majesty being poems and masks, was licensed to Thomas Walkley, who had published Carlum Britannicum in 1634. The book appeared in 1640. John Suckling, who appears from available evidence to have died in 1641, authorized publication of only five of his poems before his death. Two songs and two commendatory verses also appeared while he was alive, as well as a political pamphlet written when he was 19 but not published until he had fled to France in 1641. His Fragmenta Aurea, however, did not appear until 1646, five years after his death. Even as late as the Restoration, Andrew Marvell's miscellaneous poems only appeared three years after Marvell's 1678 death. They appeared in a folio collection edited by a person claiming to be Mary Marvell, his wife. Those of you who grew up reading Captain Marvel may remember that Captain Marvel's wife is Mary Marvel. I do come from that generation, and I remember this name with great pleasure every time I bump into this tale. Um, it's uncertain that Mary Marvel or Mary Marvell had any motive loftier than that of establishing a claim on Marvell's estate. Presumably, however, the printer thought the volume would find a market. Even a poet like Marvell, who lived well into the later 17th century, could apparently quite happily publish very few of his own poems during his lifetime. Marvell, however, had permitted certain political, satirical, or religious pieces to be printed while he was alive. Many other writers, of course, did put their own literary work into print during their lifetimes, and some were at least as well regarded as Sir Philip Sidney, Dunn, and Marvell. Spencer, for example, went to print as a young man, if without his own name on the title page, and later had no hesitation about seeing the fairy queen into print. For Spencer, trying to climb to positions of civil authority at court, publication appears to have represented an unavoidable necessity, a kind of advertisement of talents in a manner already well established among both continental and English humanists interested in the prospects of a court career. Necessary or not, publication appears to have made Spencer somewhat nervous, or else why did he avoid his name as author on his own title page? Those who needed to know or who might be in a position to reward the merits his works had brought to their attention, he might have felt, could easily have found out his name. Those who did not need to know would not, leaving his social position unsullied, at least to their rabble eyes. 
William Shakespeare may have carelessly left the task of seeing his plays into print to a posterity which might or might not choose to do so, but Ben Jonson clearly differentiated himself from Shakespeare by the care with which he oversaw the printing of the 1616 folio of his plays. Indeed, in publishing his plays with the great care over their printing that he took, Jonson appears both to have been making a claim about the literary merits of that sort of writing, not as highly regarded as more recognizably literary poetic forms during this period, and also to have indicated his indifference to social status issues which underlay the attitude of those more socially pretentious writers who avoided print while they were alive. His attitudes were consistent with respect both to his plays and his poetry. With his non-dramatic works, too, as Richard Newton has shown, Johnson was supremely conscious of the advantages provided authors by printed dissemination of their works. Nor was Milton behindhand in seeing his poetry or his prose into print while he was alive, even revising Paradise Lost from 10 to 12 books in successive printed versions. Justification of God's ways to man, however, may be supposed to excuse a lot of spilt ink, and the same may be said of justification of Cromwell's ways as well. Cromwell's little ways may even have seemed to some to require rather more justification than God's. Milton had no option to remain in manuscript given his very specific didactic and propagandistic aims. Grub Street writers, pamphleteers like Robert Greene, Thomas Nash, and Thomas Decker consistently saw their works into print during their lifetimes. They depended for their meager living on whatever income such publications obtained for them. Nonetheless, as Sandra Clark reminds us, pamphleteering was an occupation with a low status and a bad reputation. These were not writers likely to worry too much about the status implications of their publishing careers. In fact, however, some of them did worry about their status, comparing their present situation as poverty-stricken hacks to, the pretensions, to, to their pretensions as university graduates who once had faced great futures but had failed to fulfill them. Some were bitterly resentful of those upstart crows who, lacking their own educational advantages, nonetheless made names for themselves even in such unlofty domains as those occupied by the public theaters. Writers who committed their works to print, whatever their place on the social scale, pose few problems. Whatever their reasons, and we may suppose that there were about as many different reasons as there were writers, they were doing exactly what we expect writers in an era of print to have done. Even Ben Jonson's unusual attitudes towards the status of plays as literature are likely to strike us as reflective of a predictable, more or less modern sense of the potential impact of print that his non-dramatic publications also reveal. Questions are raised instead by those writers who eschewed print. 
That they are important questions is indicated by the surprisingly large number of such writers, which I have barely hinted at, as well as by their quality. Wyatt, Sidney, Dunn, and Marvell, to say nothing of Shakespeare, are all by themselves a great many of those 16th and 17th century English writers of poetry whom we still read for pleasure, and not because some has told us to. The significance for the study of printing history of the questions raised by their avoidance of print is suggested by Richard C. Newton, not a printing historian, but a now lately deceased English literary scholar, writing about Ben Jonson, a poet committed to print. Newton could not have written in this way had he studied any of those writers who, unlike Johnson, was not committed to print. The invention of printing bestowed, as Elizabeth Eisenstein has shown, this is Newton speaking, an almost incalculable legacy on Western culture of the effects that I am interested in, permanence and liberation from performance are especially important. Every writer, perhaps, sets pen to paper with the vision of immortality. So at least those favorites of poets, the topoi of immortality, would indicate. But from earliest antiquity, poets could not ignore the flotsam of wrecked and fragmentary texts and the jetsam of artists whose names alone had barely survived the wash of time. Before printing, all poets could hope, but none could truly expect to survive. Preservation of the text is therefore a principal buttress of poets' immortal longings. The other buttress, equally important, is popularity, the instrument of which, before printing and the mass production of texts, was necessarily performance. To publish a poem before printing meant to send it abroad in manuscript, of course, but also in performance. Wyatt and Surrey, the Sydney brothers, Dunn, Greville, Marvel, and many other poets as well, evidenced attitudes towards their writing which make Newton's statement about the virtues of print utterly without point to them. They seem not to have cared about permanence, Kernan's fixity, and the manner in which their literary production circulated in manuscript first and foremost to a small circle of friends and literary associates makes its performative basis quite clear. They produced coterie works intended for an audience of close friends, clients, and family members, as author F. Marathi writes, and thus their poetic discourse was deliberately adjusted to the occasion written sometimes to please an audience of friends and supposedly always to please oneself. Without doubt, Newton's words are relevant to Ben Jonson, in whose work he writes, we first see the impact of printing on literature coherently assimilated. Here and elsewhere, Newton writes about Jonson and illuminates him with exceptional intelligence. Founded as his words are, however, on a perception central to the new printing history as articulated by Eisenstein, 
it is strikingly obvious how partial this history is in its application because it overlooks so much contradictory behavior or more accurately recognizes that in his regard for printing's capabilities, Johnson is exceptional, not typical. Too many important Tudor and Stuart writers seemed not to care that lacking textual integrity and autonomy, impermanent, bound to performance, a manuscript unlike a printed book is never complete. It is always the possession of its last possessor, always in process, always being interpreted for the needs of the social group that, as an audience, possesses it. These two were Newton's words, drawing on Eisenstein and demonstrating the inferiority of the manuscript book to the fixity of print. They are also words that echo, albeit negatively, precisely what Saunders describes his court writers as valuing. Indeed, when Dunn wrote to Goodyear in 1614, his purpose was not only to bemoan the harsh necessity that, he thought, was about to drag him into print, but also he was asking for the return of some of his own poetic manuscripts, which he had sent to Goodyear, but no longer had copies of in his own hands. It's almost inconceivable to imagine a modern poet allowing herself or himself to find that he was in the same pickle. Other 16th and 17th century poets were to find themselves in similar situations on more than one occasion, a fact quite indicative of their lack of concern for textual integrity, autonomy, completeness, possession, and the other appurtenances of what we, like Newton, assume to be an author's authoritative interests in his own product. Why, in an age of print, should these writers have regarded the prospect of seeing their literary output fixed in printed form with apprehension, disdain, or condescension? Were all of Saunders' court poets simply premature Luddites opposed to newfangled printing? Saunders found the explanation of their attitudes in social class or aspiration, as I've already indicated. The Tudor courtier modeling himself after Castiglione's ideal courtier, regarded the practice of poetry as one of the parts of a gentleman that he must refine. To do so for the wider public, or even more unspeakably for gain, was, however, demeaning. Court poetry had no economic function to perform. It did, however, have a social function, for when it was properly pursued, it signified the poet's gentility. Very tentatively, I would suggest that perhaps even the Shakespeare-Ben Jonson contrast can be partially explained in such terms. Shakespeare, who did not seek to print his plays, and whose poems were only published in a way that causes scholars dyspepsia to this day, sought a coat of arms, and gives every evidence of having relished attaining the status of a leading citizen of Stratford. Johnson, who carefully oversaw the printing of his plays, sought not badges of merit, but money. He had as well some points to make about the literary status of the plays he wrote, 
and he seems to have harbored few desires to be much more than the leading citizen of the Mermaid Tavern so long as he might be employed every so often to write a mask for the court. Harboring no illusions about his status, he felt more free to seek print than Shakespeare. Poets may indeed seek to achieve immortality for themselves or those they write about through their verse, or what printing historians following Kernan may call instead the fixity afforded their words by print. So long as men can breathe or eyes can see, so long lives this and this gives life to thee. But print provides not only for fixity, but also for multiplicity, for publication of many copies of a work which can and will circulate without control to any and all audiences. Thou shouldst print more, not let that copy die. Thus also Shakespeare, as usual, quotable for any and every side of an argument, and also quoted here from those sonnets which it is by no means certain that he wanted to see in print. The Tudor court poet may not have desired such multiplicity and such audiences and seems, in fact, precisely to have rejected them. Kernan himself points to the tension, if not downright contradiction, between two of the primary energies of print logic, multiplicity and fixity, a tension which has never been resolved. It was certainly not resolved in the 16th or even in the 17th century, at least not among some reasonably significant English writers. Eisenstein argues for the immediacy of the impact of print on European history, and at least one kind of writer in one small corner of Europe, however, we find reason to question that immediacy of impact, and hence the generalizations through which we are learning, still learning, to think about printing history generally. I do not yet know, and this is a point which needs further investigation, whether the same sort of phenomenon that I've discussed here can be found as well among the literary writers of France, Spain, the Germanies, or Italy. It is a matter which needs investigation, although my colleague Sandra Sider of the Hispanic Society has provided me with a list of 16th century Catalonian court poets who also seem to have avoided putting their works into print for many of the same sorts of reasons that Saunders ascribes to the Tudor poets with whom he was dealing. Most scientists, theologians, and scholars generally, whose works were usually written in Latin rather than the vernacular, exhibited nothing like the reluctance to commit themselves to print that the English court poets display. Although this observation too requires investigation, and at least some exceptions come to mind. A well-established pattern of manuscript circulation seems to have functioned for scientists in something of the same manner that preprints function in today. But circulated manuscripts were usually intended ultimately to appear in print. <clears throat> Johannes Muller, uh, known as Regiomontanus, is only one instance of a scientist who practiced this sort of manuscript circulation prior to the printed appearance of uh, works that he was circulating around and getting responses to. 
On the other hand, other scientists, particularly those who investigated topics we now group among the pseudo or occult scientific preoccupations of the age, wrote up their essays and manuscripts and never published them at all. My own library possesses just such a manuscript from the pen or amanuensis of Henry Percy, the Wizard Earl, and Linda Voigt's is busily at work now creating a catalog of as many such manuscripts as she can locate in North American and European repositories. In their own age, it is worth noting, such occult scientists were not charlatans, or at least not always, and they were fearful of allowing the untutored to have too easy a form of access to the results of their studies, precisely because they did take them seriously and they didn't want every Tom, Dick, and Harry running around trying to turn lead into gold or whatever the object of their researches was. They, they certainly did not want a whole slew of folk out there in the field talking to demons. That's not good. Uh, those of you who remember Ghostbusters will remember that that's really not good. <laughs> they adopted a deliberate and conscious policy of avoiding print for this reason, and also, to be completely fair, because particularly in Roman Catholic countries, they felt it prudent to avoid attracting the notice of the Inquisition. In Protestant lands as well, they could also avoid censure or persecution by not committing their investigations to print. Still, the upshot, for whatever reason, is that they were not running to print as we might otherwise have expected they would have been. I hope it's sufficiently clear that what I'm trying to do today is to ask a question and not to propose any definitive answer to that question. I do, however, definitely mean it to suggest the need for caution in adapting too readily all the tenets of an approach to print and its impact which omits the kind of exceptions I have noted here today. Eisenstein may very well be correct that multiplicity, systematization, and fixity come to characterize what we have learned to call print culture that they do so as quickly as she would have us believe seems on the face of it highly improbable. I just don't think history works that way. Wyatt in the early and Sidney in the late 16th century, Dunn in the early and Marvel in the late 17th century suggest that the processes she described were to play themselves out over a much longer period of time than Eisenstein's sense of the revolution of the impact of printing from movable type implies before they came to dominate the thinking of authors in ways now we unthinkingly and anachronistically assume. I find it very tempting to propose that one possible result of a revisionist investigation I think well worth undertaking will be the validation of a suggestion offered by Alvin Kernan that not until the end of the 17th and the beginning of the 18th century did print transform the more advanced countries of Europe from oral into print societies, reordering the entire social world and restructuring rather than merely modifying letters. 
the reluctance of the Tudor and Stuart Court poets to prostitute their muse to the public press certainly indicates that that transformation had not yet occurred in a small portion of England's writing society at the end of the 16th and throughout much of the 17th century. Thank you.